0: So Keith, thanks so much for joining us on the NFX podcast. And you and I have known each other for over a decade now. Uh, you and I have hosted some parties together for founders at your house. We've had you talk at the NFX Guild in the past, and and we've connected on more than one company and, uh, where we're co invested. So you you've got this powerhouse background, and um, you know you've got so many great inside stories from some of the most uh, influential companies in the world, and so many aha moments, so many Eureka moments that you were there because you're a product person, you know, because you're a business model person. You're a, you're a a person who really looks at your mental models, and whenever we talk, I always love hearing about some of the insights that you're able to glean through all these experiences over the last twenty plus years of uh, doing these startups. So today, I'm hoping we get to unpack your brain a bit uh, for the benefit of founders. Um, I got well, you know, I've got one question to ask you—a uh, fill-in-the-blank type of a question. So everyone we have on this podcast has unique ability to see things that others do not. Uh, that's kind of what we're all about, and. You know, you are certainly in that camp by far. So is there anything about you that you've noticed that allows you to see things that others do not? Some way of thinking, some way of learning uh, that, that lets you have that superpower?
1: It's a great question. I mean, I think you're right. Certainly to be an investor, one has to do by definition. Uh, see things that other people don't see um, and appreciate them before other people do. Mm-hmm. Or it's very difficult to, to be a successful investor, Same thing is mostly true of founders. I think it's a whole lot easier to build a business when you see the world differently at first um, and allow yourself to kind of build traction, momentum, develop an accumulating advantage before the rest of the world uh, sort of realizes that you're on the right track. Um, Where it probably derives from is being surrounded by a lot of people growing up, more on the political side, both in New Jersey and then at Stanford with people who are pretty left wing and never really being a leftist myself, always sort of forced me to think for myself because by definition, all the stuff I heard from my parents uh, and all the stuff I heard from my professors and most of my classmates, I just, uh, I just intuitively thought was wrong, but I had to re-derive, you know, from, from first principles and from reading history and finding my own sources, uh, my own set of philosophies. And so that probably translated to other fields later, um, even though it wasn't you know intentional. It wasn't like I'm going to go think differently about politics, and then I'm going to apply that kind of thinking to the business world. That was you know a byproduct a decade later, not an intentional strategy at all.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, um, you know, we have uh, very uh, conservative senators with very liberal daughters and sons, and then you know, you grew up in a, in a liberal family and didn't naturally accumulate that type of perspective and I can see how that would force you to start to just re-examine everything and make sure that you're quest- questioning everybody in what they're saying.
1: Yeah, and I think that's where it started right? so really, I remember early sixth grade. Um, you know my parents were kind of the anti-Nixon protester types, uh, you know anti-Vietnam war, um, had a lot of uh, friends and colleagues and they were involved in York, Baldwin, various organizations uh, you know from the 1970s. And then I remember when uh, Ronald Reagan was running for president in 1980, um, you know, the perceived wisdom among my parents and their friend crowd was, you know, Reagan was evil. He's going to blow up the world. He was anti-Semitic and we were Jewish and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, he got elected and some of the hostages came home from Iran and the world didn't blow up. In fact, the economy got better and it you know, you know, it got safer by at least most metrics. And so you start rethinking everything once, you know, sort of the whole philosophy that you've been taught proves to be invalid.
0: Got it. got it. Yeah. And so you grow up feeling comfortable not seeing the world as others do. You almost probably develop an affinity for seeing things differently. I, I remember talking with Stan Chodosky when we were building one of our companies and, and uh, you know, the board said, you know, we've got to build a really great technical system. And he says, uh, well, the way everyone would do it is this way. So that's definitely what we're not going to do. Uh, and so, and he and I, and, and obviously you feel very comfortable sort of starting from that perspective. And, you know, Keith, you call yourself a contrarian, a misfit. You know, you, you've, you've called yourself those things in the past. Um, what, what do you think the basic principles of a contrarian are? I, I think
1: the the ability to think for yourself. At the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. It's on any topic, being able to derive a set of views independent of what other people around you think. And that's very difficult to do, truthfully, because mm-hmm. everybody's influenced by the five people you spend the most time with. There's lots of studies about this. So if you're a VC, you know, you're you influenced by other VCs. Um, you know, so if, for example, both Crystal Ventures, where I worked and now Founders Fund, we consciously don't spend too much time with other VCs because the average you know, VC returns over the last 40 years are not very good. Um, so if you spend all your time with average VCs, you're going to start thinking like average VCs. So, you know, Kosla would be very differentiated in that perspective. And then Founders Fund, our offices in the Presidio which were geographically removed from other venture firms. It's very, a very conscious strategy to be like outsiders uh, so that we have a differentiated perspective. So I think, yeah, I mean, I apply this to all kinds of parts of my life. I have uh, kind of a philosophy of I'm like the anti-FOMO person I coined this. I don't know if I coined it, but I certainly borrowed this phrase and appropriated it. Called Jomo. Uh, my, I run my life about joy of missing out. So the more things I miss, the happier I am. Um, you know, so I look at Instagram and miss all these things, and it makes me more happy. Um, so you, you tend to apply it to all kinds of parts of your life, not just business.
0: That's fantastic. And when you look at uh, when you look at companies, do you often uh, decide if an idea is consensus and actively avoid that idea? Absolutely, I mean, Peter, so Peter obviously
1: wrote a book about this, you know, Zero to One, where he talks about secrets and you know, basically what secrets does the founder have or the team have insights about the world that everybody else thinks are wrong but proved to be accurate. And I think we you know, we apply that, not surprisingly, a founder's done pretty seriously. So one of the questions we always ask ourselves is what what are other people just factually wrong about, or what are they going to be blind to? Um, and if we don't have a compelling answer to that, we're very unlikely to actually offer it to invest. It is a first-level screen.
0: Yeah, got it. And, you know, you said that, you know, the Coastal Ventures often avoids being like every other VC and Founders Fund. You moved from one to the other, and I know you wrote about how that was the most difficult business decision you made in your life. What what have you found to be different at this point about being over So,
1: truthfully, like, on a scale spectrum of all VC funds in the world – Coastal Ventures and Founders Fund are closer cousins than where they're apart. You know, there's a lot of consistency in terms of the kinds of companies, the ambition of founders uh, we want to invest in. Um, Some of the differences are at Founders Fund, we're very multi-stage. So we invest from seed. I love to lead seed investments. We do Series A and Series B, pretty common venture. But we also lead growth rounds. So we'll invest $1 million in a company and we'll invest $200 million in the company, and we'll do both all day long and go back and forth. That's very common. at KB. KB was mostly a seed Series A, occasionally a Series B investor. So a higher ownership mentality, buying a lot of ownership up front, and then being diluted down with other people's money over time, which is a very conventional, very traditionally successful venture firm model. I found her fund were high-conviction investors so we have concentrated positions in over 17 companies like across the portfolio where we have more than $200 million in cost of the company. So that's very different. Second, probably most uh, acute difference is we don't do Monday partner meetings. Well, now nobody does Monday partner meetings. But uh, at the time, uh, Founders Fund was pretty unique in not having an assembled partner meeting. Uh, we have a way of approving investments, but it's based upon a set of approvals uh, that are custom and unique to each company. Uh, we never have everybody in the same room sit for a presentation of a company and then like vote on an investment. So that that's pretty different. So it, effectively it means that I have Mondays or I used to have Mondays uh, available to meet founders um, and work with portfolio companies for sitting in an insular meeting uh, debating investments.
0: Got it. Very smart. And, um, you know, in that you're a contrarian and a misfit, it doesn't just apply to your investing, right? I mean, it applies to your life and whatnot. Are there other ways that, that you feel like it expresses itself in the rest of your life as well? I'll give you some, of the, some examples of most of the sublime and the ridiculous. So the most of
1: stuff, I mean, I have a sort of set of views about politics of the world. But we'll skip over that for a second. But let me give you some ridiculous examples. So I started uh, maybe seven or ten years ago. I had like six very different ideas about the world that were kind of considered crazy, even among my friends and family. And um, I went I set about basically proving these. Um, so one I've always you know, sort of believed in, but it's becoming a little bit more normal is that the more stress you have in your life, the better, the healthier you are, the wealthier you are, the happier you are. There's a great book. I now recommend called the upside of stress by Kelly McDougall, McDougall out of Stanford. Um, that sort of proves this. But when I started thinking this way 20 years ago, there was no research that really validated this. Secondly, um, on the really ridiculous side, um, I actually don't believe that stretching is good for you. Like if you're athletic, like um, I have a whole set of reasons why one shouldn't stretch before playing sports. We can talk about that. Um, Another one that's become very conventional, but at the time, you know, I was growing up, was very differentiated. I, I've always believed that sleep is magic, that the more you sleep, the better you're going to do in your life, the healthier you're going to be, the more successful. And it's sort of always organized my life for 40 years around sleep. So we follow, we try to get eight hours sleep. Um, now there's a lot of research post 2009 that confirms the benefits of sleep and the, and the major disadvantages of lack of sleep. Uh, so, you know, that's no longer contrarian. You want to kind of a fun, silly one uh, to close with. I happen to be a fan of Apple Maps. I hate Google Maps. Um, there's a lot of story behind this, and I can give you lots of examples why, but like fundamentally half of my friends definitely pick up crazy uh, on this topic,
0: but uh, you can wind up a fair amount. Yeah, those are great examples. And also you had mentioned the, the politics, and and uh, we don't need to go there. If you don't want to, we can edit this out later, Keith, but I'm just really interested because I felt like you know we are uh, a community in Silicon Valley of contrarians or, or uh, People who are trying to think differently than than the larger the larger world and and come up with new things, and yet we've created an environment that might be hostile to people like Tim Ferriss or Peter Thiel who felt like they wanted to remove themselves from the community. You stayed here, um, despite your political views. Um, how do you how do you feel about the, that ecosystem that we're in and um and and your and your role in it and, and what could be done? Yeah, I mean, it is. I think the ecosystem
1: is fairly closed minded, despite what people. Like to think about themselves. And you're right that a lot of people who are conservatives or Republican or whatever will, if they have the luxury of success, locked out. You named a couple of examples. I can certainly think of others. And there's more on the way. But, you know, what I do for a living, I felt the best place I could be was at the center of the ecosystem of startups and founders. And I wanted to work with the most interesting, most ambitious founders. And at least as of now, there's a high concentration of them in Silicon Valley. So I felt it would be professionally negligent of me uh, to leave, even if I could find other places that would be more comforting. But that said, you know, if you're contrarian, kind of as you're talking about, I grew up in a, you know, a anti-war household that loved George McGovern and, uh, you know, and somehow managed to escape that. And I went to Stanford, which was incredibly leftist, borderline socialist or communist when I was there. And, you know, survived that. And I went to law school, which is full of, like, left-wing professors so maybe to some extent I might go crazy if I was you know, <laughs> sitting around you with know, like
0: conservatives all day. I, I don't know what I would do. That's right. You're comfortable in that role. Yeah, that feels natural. That's great. That's great. That's good. Um, so um, do you think that we should and could have more contrarians? Or by definition, does that ruin the situation? I mean – Well, it's
1: hard. You know, Jeff Bezos has a great quote about this, right? It's easy to be contrarian. It's extremely rare and difficult to be contrarian, Right. So, they, you know, the consensus has a lot of truth to it. So you can mint artificially more contrarians, but unless they're seeing things that are insightful, you know, on some predictable basis or in some domain, it's not really adding that much value. I do think extending, you know, the debate top, the, the, the window of debate is actually helpful in just validating the truth. But um, the challenge of being a contrarian is not being contrarian. The real challenge is the Venn diagram overlap of, right and different.
0: Right, right. And do you think it takes a uh, a misfit to uh, to launch a Falcon 9, for instance, to do something super ambitious like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, at, at the time, your friends are going to tell you you're crazy. I mean, I, I've talked about this from an investing standpoint. When I make a, a new investment, I really want half of my phone VCs VCs to think I'm like, crazy and like laugh at the investment. I don't want 100% to laugh necessarily because then you know maybe I'm actually missing something, not them. But if none of them are laughing or 20%, then I'm probably not taking enough risk. And it's probably not a differentiated enough investment. So, you know, I really do consciously think about when I hear a pitch, like, A, what, what are other people going to miss and why? And then B, is this going to sound ridiculous to a reasonable set of smart people? Because then I know I'm taking enough risk and effectively i will be compensated for being right if I'm right.
0: And was there a time, speaking of crazy, was there a time when you were running one of your companies? where you thought to yourself, this is crazy?
1: You know, if I ever felt like what we were doing was crazy, I certainly would have lobbied very aggressively and, you know, hopefully persuasively to whoever was making the final decision that we shouldn't be doing X, Y, or Z. Um, I do think there's definitely the times that many companies have been involved in that the world thought we were crazy. So, for example, back in my PayPal days, uh, Red Herring, which at the time was, you know, like the centerpiece of Silicon Valley consen- uh, technology consen- uh, consensus opinion, ran this uh, cover story on PayPal called Earth to PayPal. And, um, you know, Peter never forgot this. Like, actually, when we celebrated our IPO, um, he held up the cover. And when we celebrated our acquisition by eBay, he gave another speech holding up the cover. Uh, So, you know, we we definitely were considered to be weird, odd misfits at the time. But internally, I'm not sure, you know, that I actually thought we were, well, I definitely thought we were misfits, but I don't think we were wrong. Um and same thing. I you know, I think the companies I was involved in, I think were making for the most part quite wise decisions and you know, whether the world appreciated it or not, that that wasn't the key criteria, fortunately, and most of the companies have worked on
0: it. Got it. And you know, speaking of just quickly PayPal, and it was a long time ago, but you know, when you look back, what were some of the things you put your you could put your finger on today that that created such a mafia, that created such a Uh, Flowering of sort of a Cambrian explosion of entrepreneurship coming out of that one company. What were some of the elements that that you feel were there? Yeah, the number
1: one, you know, credit goes to really Peter and Knox for recruiting. Um, They had a philosophy of hiring and finding the right people and, you know, ultimately sourced a huge fraction of the PayPal network uh, through their personal networks. Peter through his connections at Stanford and Knox mostly hired engineers out of either his high school experience in Chicago or the University of Illinois, um, and, you know, really brought the two teams together and mixed them. Uh, so they deserve most of the credit because they identified people with high potential at scale and mixed everybody together. Once we are in the building, then I think there was a set of management philosophies that were very different at the time that might have enabled us, uh, you know, to be uh, successful both as a company at PayPal, but then subsequently, so, for example, we didn't really believe in general managers. So, Peter was adamant that we weren't going to hire people whose skill in life was managing. We were going to promote the best person in each domain, in each discipline to lead that discipline. So, for example, the best engineer would become VP of engineering. The best designer would be the design team, the best product person would be the product team, the best finance person be CFO. And that led to um, a building of craft, a putting of craft and and it's sort of a meritocratic feel because everybody knew that their boss is actually pretty damn good at what he or she did. And you didn't have this demoralization of, well, you know, I'm excellent at acts by a person. that has no clue what the hell, you know, I do or what I'm doing or why it's so important. Uh, so I think that was pretty fundamental. And then the third thing that was pretty important was it was a hard business. It was very challenging. There was a lot of obstacles, a lot of people, enemies that didn't really like us from Visa, MasterCard, the federal and state governments at different times, eBay, et cetera. So, you know, it's sort of a trial by fire situation. And I think like the metaphor of war, you definitely bond with people in that kind of environment and you get to see who's really good under pressure and stress and who actually you know, doesn't thrive under those circumstances. So when people subsequently went to start their own companies, I think a lot of us have perspectives on how would this person do as a founder, because being a founder is you know Elon talks about all the time, it's like chewing boss, et cetera. It's not particularly fun, hey, it's very painful. It requires a lot of, you know, self uh self actualization and initiative. Um and I think we had pretty good insight into who was likely to thrive in that environment. And that's why I think some of the companies did really well
0: subsequently. Got it. I think it would also be fair to say that you guys are sort of um exiting those companies sort of five, six, seven years into the internet. Which was a pretty prime time to start exiting and, and start new companies. I think with
1: the benefit of hindsight, that's clearly right, but at the time it didn't feel that way. So, you know, PayPal went public in 2002, and you know Silicon Valley's nuclear winner was and 2000 2003, maybe four. And so, when we exited PayPal and we're starting new investing or starting new things in 2004, called 2003, four or five, depending on which company you're talking about. Most people didn't think that there was another wave of consumer innovation that was likely to be successful. We happened to believe that, which is why we started all these companies, funded each other's companies, etc. And history or record that as being right, but it wasn't obvious at the time. The reason why actually the PayPal network became kind of more essential to sell the was there's a vacuum. Most of the traditional networks in Silicon Valley weren't doing a lot of interesting things in 2001, two, three, and four. They're afraid and fearful, uh, and so people came to us because they didn't really have a choice. Like we were writing checks and willing to work on companies and join companies um, that became the next generation. But there wasn't a clear there wasn't a clear visibility into there was going to be another generation of innovation.
0: Got it. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And you know, one of the you founded a lot of companies. Not only have you invested in so many, but you founded a bunch. I'd love to hear a time where you threw out the rule book or and, and it either blew up in your face or it went incredibly well. Like uh what are some of these stories? You and I have talked about some of these things. I'd love to bring some of these out for the other founders to hear. In most fields, truthfully, I like someone as a lawyer and in the same thing is law. The art
1: in most fields is is understanding the rule book really well, precisely, and then knowing when to deviate. It's like knowing when to deviate. You know, I remember learning this. This is going to sound very, like, very crazy, but I remember being kind of a whip, <laughs> kind of a annoying high school student in, in English class, and reading some of these, you know, great works of literature that we read sophomore, junior year, and noticing that some of all time occasionally violate grammar rules, and you know, I'd be the little crazy kid and be like, well, you know, why does my paper get marked up when I do this and, you know, so-and-so paper's author gets away with this? And, you know, the correct response by my English teacher was, well, when you master all the rules, you get to violate them. And there's a bit of truth to that. You know, it's like a valley, too, that deviating from rules doesn't make much sense per se. It's knowing why you're deviating from the rule. Now, obviously, if you follow the rulebook, you're not going to create a com- an iconic company from scratch. There is no rule book that tells you how to build an X-based X or Tesla by definition. And so you need to know what rules you're going to change. That's why I don't like the phrase best practices. Best practices just lead you to commoditize your replication of something else. You can borrow best practices, but you need to know where you're intentionally not following, quote unquote, best practices, or you'll just be in the middle of the bell curve, which is not your goal. I had a kind of funny other example. In 2003, I got Lasix, and you know, I was so hesitant to get Lasix for lots of obvious reasons that but my colleagues were always laughing at me because I had scheduled appointments that canceled in the last minute like for like six months. They are terrified of somebody, you know, cutting into my eye with a laser. And I remember what finally convinced me. I went to this doctor, quite good uh, surgeon, eye surgeon, uh, and he did all these tests on me for like an hour and a half. And he walks into the room and he looks at me and he smiles and he said, I'm going to tell you something you've never been probably happy to hear before, but you're right in the middle of the bell curve. And he's like, "There's nothing that will go wrong with this procedure. This procedure was made for you and your eyes. And the only possible thing that could go wrong is if I screw up. And so that led me to realize that you know as you go forward with the procedure, which turned out to be a good decision. But like mm-hmm. that's how you kind of have to think about the world. Is you don't really want to, as an entrepreneur and founder, you certainly don't want to be in the middle of the bell curve. You need to be, you know, at the extreme one percent, and and it's consciously choosing those things where you want to do differently." So, you know, I mentioned some things we did differently at PayPal, management philosophy, hiring philosophy. Um, we hired different people, um, different backgrounds than with standard Silicon Valley, managed and promoted them differently, et cetera. We use a different distribution strategy, which we talked about. So you always want to consciously violate, you know, some of the rules, but it's, it's a very intentional strategy. It's like Apple violates lots of rules, like closed platforms. Most people, you know, for 20 years have argued that you shouldn't build a closed platform, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of, you know, intentional, they're secret. They don't let people talk to each other, like in the company that works on different teams. That's very unconventional. They don't actually use metrics for the most part to measure themselves. So all of those three things would violate most of Silicon Valley norms, but they're very indispensable to Apple's success. And there's a reason why they're, I think, the most valuable company, uh, certainly the most valuable technology company today
0: so you when you were running companies and your management teams you guys could decide which rules you were going to violate and which unique things to do but when you're an investor you kind of have to take the set of violations that the founders are bringing do you ever get that wrong do you ever do you ever say oh that you can't violate that way you should violate it in a different way or
1: uh well i definitely asked the question like what are you doing differently and why and sort of like what are the secrets in et cetera What's special about this team and this founder? And what are you know, what what are why are they likely to have unreasonable success? I mean, if you think about it, it's a heroic, almost ridiculous assertion to have two kids in the proverbial garage say, I'm gonna change the world. You know, raise your hand, I'm gonna change the entire financial services world, we change the entire real estate world, we change this entire whatever. That's kind of ridiculous in some ways. So you need people who can kind of take on, you know, ridiculous ambition and where they have this spark and you look at them and say, you know what, there's some shot there that they might actually be right. And you you kind of feel that, like, wow, I've never met somebody like that before. Maybe they could change the world. Um, And that's what you really want to feel, especially early um, in a company's trajectory as an investor. So you can have a dialogue about, well, what rules are you violating and why? And that allows you to see, you know, understand how the person's brain works and the calculations they're making. The, The bad version of that conversation is they don't even realize they're violating the rules. Or they don't understand the reasons why they're deviating. And it's not a very thoughtful, conscious decision. That's usually a disaster. It's kind of a recipe for a mess because you don't want to be violating all the rules. Like you want to selective leech. There is a Darwinistically evolution of like how humans behave, and you want to tap into some you know learnings from history. You're know, standing on threshold of a giant sort of thing, and so if you're trying to reinvent everything, that probably means you're not really successfully reinventing anything, and you're probably also creating a mass on the backside of your reinvention. So there's a, it's a great dialogue to have to filter out you know, how savvy and insightful someone can be.
0: Got it. Got it. You now, in the past, you and I have talked about some of the, the metrics that you would use to measure the business. Um, I think you told me a story about Yelp having discovered a metric around the number of messages amongst the Yelp elite uh, in their local areas as being a key indicator of what was going to happen in the future in each of the cities where Yelp was expanding back in 2004, 2006. Uh, that that stuck with me. And, uh, you know, can you tell that story? And then are there other stories of other companies you've been working with, whether it's Open Door or PayPal or the other ones that you founded or helped start?
1: Uh, absolutely. So I remember this was at either the, probably the second board meeting uh, that I joined, uh, the uh, effort by the board of Yelp. And I remember, you know, Jeremy Stoffelman uh, was finishing his presentation, the basic presentation of a dad. And he basically gave this vision of that Yelp was really building this social product, which, you know, not everybody appreciated at the time. And it was a different social product. It wasn't the viral social product, you know, spam your friends through email or whatever. So he was setting this up and framing, you know, the vision of the company against the metrics. And I looked across the table and I said, okay, well, if you're building a social product, what's the key metric that'll tell you whether you're right or wrong? Like, is it working or not? Is it getting better? And he looked up without hesitating and said, It's the unique number, the number of unique messages, one on one personal messages from one community member to another. And personally at the time, I thought the answer was like ridiculous. Like that that would be the key metric for the company. But you know very quickly thereafter, certainly within three to six months, I realized he was actually right, that that was the key predictor for whether we were building a true community and whether people were attending events because they wanted to be part of a community, whether they would craft reviews because they wanted to be part of the community, whether they would create the El badge because they'd want to be part of the community. So he was totally right. but it was very extremely counter- counterintuitive at the time. But that's also a good example of you know as an investor board member, I can ask questions about it and probe whether he's right, but he was much more right than I ever would have been. That's why it's his company and why he was successful at it. Versus if I had started it, it would have been a miserable disaster. <laughs> um, but hopefully, once in a while, I was able to help him, you know, craft a couple things correctly too. There was a few things, few things along the way I helped
0: with. Um, Asking good questions is often uh, easier and more productive than trying to actually come up with a solution.
1: It's a great. It's actually a great technique as a I think 90% of the times a board member asking a question is the right way to go. And that series of questions, it is something you learned in law school, so it's pretty native to people who are lawyers. It's like sort of the socratic dialogue kind of stuff. But a probing set of questions can get you to a better answer in a way that's more constructive than a standard
0: debate. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Are there other examples of of metrics that you thought were incredibly powerful that helped you realize that either an open door or a PayPal was working or something else?
1: Well, I'll give you the famous PayPal example. It's been told, you know, occasionally publicly, but I think it's worth clicking on because it's so shocking. Is nobody really believed that eBay was a target market for PayPal? In fact, so there was an official list of the top ten target applications for PayPal, and eBay was not right on the top ten list. Um, and you know, there's documents that still exist actually have the list. And then, um, well, David Sachs noticed was there was 54 sellers on eBay, which is a very small number actually. Like at the time eBay had hundreds of thousands of sellers, so 54 is a very small number. But there's 54 sellers who had hand-typed uh, into their listings, uh, please pay me through PayPal. And David noticed that. And the first reaction, by the way, of the PayPal executive team on day one was, oh my God, why are these people using PayPal and we should get rid of them because that's not that's not what we're supposed to be doing. David came into the office the next day and said, aha, I think I found our market." And then, therefore, it started to invest in productizing what was manual labor for the sellers. So we created a logo, a PayPal logo, that they could insert as opposed to type. And then we created an automated way to insert the logo as opposed to manually do it in the listing. These sellers have lots of listings. So it basically became both the marketing, the market for the company to focus on, as well as the guiding light for the product strategy for two years.
0: Got it. So that was a very small signal in a sea of data that David Sachs had the skill and the, the, the acumen to understand this could actually be a scalable platform because there's already hundreds of thousands of people who want to do transactions here. They're being underserved clearly as these 54 have indicated. And let's make that easy. Let's reduce the friction on that and see what happens. And we, you reduced a little bit of the friction and it really took off. And then next two years, you just kept. Doubling down on that and that's what create an HTML button, HTML button that could be easily inserted and then created what we call auto insert,
1: where you could auto insert it in all your listings. And you know, that was basically the history of PayPal right there. Um foundation. You know, there's other examples too. Um, I remember thinking, um, so back when I joined Square, um, we were just launching and so we'd shipped about ten or twenty thousand squares into the world, and we started to grow. And we weren't doing any marketing. Like, most things didn't have money to do marketing. Like, at the time, we raised our Series A, but that was it. And so we didn't have real money to spend on paid acquisition. But I remember I was used to sit next to Jack, and we, had this, we actually did have a fairly refined dashboard for an early-stage company. And I remember Jack pointing to his computer, um, like, my second week there, after we sh- or probably third week, after, second week after we shipped these squares, and noticing day by day, we were adding more users per day. We Really consistent trend of five days, you know, started up trend of five days, Um, very statistically significant. But in any event, it was like five days, and it was like growing a little bit each day. And he said, "Why is this happening?" And I paused
0: because under the standard set of rules, it really shouldn't have been happening. We weren't doing anything to create this growth. There was no viral mechanism in Snide that you were tracking. There was, there was no giant PR thing that was happening. I mean, we had that spiky PR,
1: like I'm the company and things like that, but that was not in this data set. So I thought about it for a few minutes, and I formulated a hypothesis, and it was really only a hypothesis uh, given the constraints. So, so, aha, maybe this is a function of people seeing squares in the real world, the actual device and some fraction of them that see it signing up. Because it's the only thing I can think of that can explain this. So once you have a hypothesis, then the next question is, well, how do you validate that? How do you test it? So if true, there should be a ratio for every new square we shipped and every new customer and every transaction in the rate of growth. Turned out there's a perfect relationship. It was exactly 1%. So for 1% of all transactions on, let's say, day zero, we'd have 1% of signups the next day, new signups. And it just was perfectly consistent. It's like, this is amazing. We now have an actual viral loop uh, in the real world. Um, David Sachs, actually, I I explained this story to David um, many years ago, and he wrote a blog post that combines the PayPal story, the Square story, and he talks a little bit about think bird in his blog post, so you can read about this. But it was really about epiphany. Now once I realized that, then there's there a lot of tactics that occurred to me of, uh, well, we should do XYZ differently because we have this loop, this observability loop in the real world that's causing growth. Um, but it was not at all obvious. It, this almost never works. It's a very rare example when this actually worked.
0: Right. Where where you basically have people using the product and through word of mouth, like with an Uber. You know, you you're waiting for, you're getting out of the bar. Someone calls an Uber, you get into the Uber with them, and you said, How do you do that? And he says, Let me show you the app. And that's sort a of word of mouth, sort of hand to hand combat, if you will, it grows by by word of mouth in the real world.
1: It was the aesthetic appeal of the device, the, the consistency of the device with the names that you could remember. You see the square, square, remember to go sign up. But it worked, and it worked for like 18 months. There were things later that you know, changed the equation a little bit, but fundamentally, 18 months where we definitely would not have had enough money that we could have raised just to grow on paid acquisition. Obviously payments is you know not the highest part of business. So your payback cycle is a little long. So paid marketing at best is a compliment for Square. It, it really can't be the primary driver. Yeah.
0: Got it. Got it. Those are great examples. Um, so do you have a kind of mental checklist? I'd love to dig into some of the mental models that you like. Um, to use uh, when you're making decisions, do you have mental checklists or approaches for decision making?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think everybody does. I mean, you kind of have to if you're making decisions, whether as an executive, you're making decisions all day long, every day, or as an investor, you're pretty much making decisions one way or the other. Which meeting, even which meetings to take, um, even if it's not quote-unquote an investment decision, it actually effectively is. Uh, so, absolutely, I have a, a set of mental models for a whole bunch of different topics: how to hire. What companies I like to invest in, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, that's mostly how I work with founders post-investment. The really great founders don't ask you, you know, should you A or B? That's a pretty rare way they frame a question. What they actually will say to you, and this is almost verbatim, will be, "What's the what's the best conceptual way to approach this problem? Can you give me a framework for deciding between A and B?" Um, so, you know, I try to focus on how do you frame an approach to solving a problem. And then that, that's nice because it scales. You can
0: And so what, what are some of your favorite ones that you find yourself repeating more often than not?
1: Yeah. So um, I gave a whole lecture um, at uh, Stanford uh, sponsored by Rock Combinator in 2013 on how to run a company. It's called how to operate and walk through a lot of philosophy and conceptual frameworks on when to delegate, when not to delegate, when, you know, how to think about different organizational structures, et cetera. So, I highly recommend that. There's a transcript of it if you don't like watching a full boring YouTube lecture. Reading the transcript is actually pretty good, uh, it's pretty high fidelity with the slides, especially. Uh, secondly, um, framework on when to hire someone with experience versus when not to, when to hire someone with up and coming talent, when to promote versus later somebody. Uh, I've tweeted like my invest- my favorite investment formula. So I try to distill things. Um, I don't use the Peter Thielian like two by two grid very often, but if you read Zero to One, he's got some pretty good frameworks in there as well. Um, I only have one two one by two by two grid I ever use, uh, but yeah, I, have, I try to develop these. And then you know I have um, my former chief of staff, who's now principal founder, Founders, Mondelian, has a set of blog posts that try to distill some of these so that you know founders can read these. He's like you know call from Keith. And there's a bunch of different topics he, he, he's, you know, written really excellent stuff
0: that, that a lot of founders really appreciate. So I highly recommend those as well. That's great. Those are great resources. Thanks for doing that. Um, you say, you've you all since said that every problem is a leadership problem?
1: Uh, I've already, Well, I didn't actually coin this. This is a Stripe philosophy. Uh, but when I read it, not surprisingly, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, it's like the version, the Netflix version of the same is every problem is really a context problem. Of like when people make poor decisions or decisions that you don't agree with, it's probably because they don't have the same context that you have. So you Mm -hmm. want to give people as much information and transparently as possible, so that the rest of the organization will make the same decisions the CEO would. Um, This is the strike version is obviously the right person doing the right things. You tend to get the right answers.
0: Got it. And you know, one of the things I've heard also is uh, a lot of the problems that we think we have uh, boil down to recruiting problems. Which I guess then translates into leadership role.
1: Yeah, the right, it's, it's a little bit like I happen to like sports or used to like sports people, you know, right now it's hard to watch sports, but fundamentally um, sports is a lot about fielding the right play putting the right players in the right position. You people who would thrive, you know, as a second baseman, who would be terrible as a first baseman. And part of the art is putting people in the right places so that they can thrive. And understanding that occasionally it would be wrong and then maybe the right answer is to try moving them around. And Steve, you know, for example, the best relief pitcher of all time, um, started as a starting pitcher. He might have been a pretty good starting pitcher, but he wouldn't have been a first ballot Hall of Famer um, as a starting pitcher most likely. So someone had the epiphany that, you know, maybe he should be our relief pitcher and a closer um, in the rest of his history.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I thought you said so well is you said that uh, the team you build is the company you build.
1: Yeah, so I learned this from Vinod Kosla. Uh, Vinod was on my board at Square. And he said this, and that, you know, at first, honestly, I found it like a little surprising because like typically people in Silicon Valley think about technology and technical advantage and IP, and then they think about distribution advantages and distribution strategies and network effects. They often forget the people, and the way he expressed it was just so simple and cut through the clutter and make and I say like, the more, it's one of these things that every minute you think about it, it gets more and more, more powerful and insightful. So now, you know, for boss, this is, he probably mentioned this to me eight or nine years ago. Now I think about it every day. Um, it really is the people, the team you build really is the company. And with the right people, you wind up with a phenomenal company. But a lot of people, you have an unmitigated disaster, and most companies are somewhere
0: in between. Yeah. You know, this plays a little bit into this debate that uh, is coming up more and more about remote versus being in Silicon Valley. Right? I mean, traditionally, if you look at the total returns in in tech, eighty-five, ninety percent of all the returns have been in this in this Silicon Valley area. But uh, increasingly, with the remote technologies, and and people say stuff like, "Look, now I can go hire the best people, uh, no matter where they are." Um, you know, well, how do you come down on that uh, when you think about you know the company is the people you hire?
1: I think it does depend upon the company, what the company's um, vision is, how predictable the vision how linear is it, and what skill sets you need. So, for example, the benefit of being co-located is mostly uh, extemporaneous conversations, dialogues that wouldn't have happened by scheduled meeting. So, you know, I'm in the office late at night, I'm in the office on Sunday afternoon, and some random individual in the company, who probably doesn't even report to me, walks up to my desk and says, hey, Keith, I've got this idea. And I look up and I say, you know what? That's actually pretty interesting. It's not exactly what we should do, but what if we treat it this way or we can riff on it? That could be a pretty good idea. And some of those ideas are really 10x ideas. Those are very difficult to schedule like by meeting, by fiat, by calendar, and by remote. So that said, some companies have a very linear roadmap. It's very obvious what the value proposition is. It's very obvious what you need to do, what the sequence is. And the innovation cycle isn't required, you know, in, in small dose of the time, that might work
0: pretty well remotely. Kinda, so maybe with a B2B company or an enterprise software on that end of the spectrum and then a, a consumer thing on the other end.
1: Yeah, but the it's the step function innovation that I do worry about remotely happening. Having watched it, how a lot of really good ideas it came from spontaneous meals together, spontaneous late nights, almost like borderline, like fooling around, you know, like over a drink or pizza. Um, some ideas that definitely should have got filtered out like over the pizza and beer, but like pretty good ideas too. Um, and the same thing at square in my experience, um, some really good ideas happen in, in like, you know, random time intervals. And so okay. I, I do think that you will lose some of the, that innovation for the companies that need that step function innovation and want to consistently compete on that basis.
0: Got it. So as you're looking at your investment portfolio over the last two years, some of the companies are more remote, some of them are less remote, or do you find yourself just saying, look, I, I want, if you're under 30 people, I want you all in the same office because we need an innovation curve that's going to give us the 10X, which will lead to the 100, the 200, the 400X returns on the investment. Or are you, or are you saying, you know, in this area, I'm okay with remote because of its nature, its linear nature?
1: I think in some areas I'm okay although not necessarily thrilled. Like, so for example, the criteria that would lead me to be more okay. If there was a co-founder who already had a pre-existing relationship with the CEO and was going to open an office where they, where he or she has a network. Okay, I can buy that. So, for example, one of the companies that I've uh, been involved in, you know, for years now, it's doing really well. It's called Fair F A I R E. They've always built their engineering team in Canada because one of the three co-founders and they're in Canada, and you know, but he's a co-founder, and so they've been able to scale their engineering there at you know. Half the cost, less entitlement, all the benefits. But that works because he has a very significant pre-existing relationship with his other two co-founders. A lot less problematic. now. Um, Now, interesting enough, a lot of the product innovation actually does come from the Silicon Valley office and from the CEO on down. But it made it work, but that's one of the rare circumstances. Secondly, I think a lot of people are trying remote for the first time right now. And they're finding it's not that bad, but remember, there's a lot of pre-existing relationships. Um, for the companies that suddenly switched on remote because of COVID, and I do wonder about what would those conversations look like, and how high fidelity would the debates and dialogues be if there was no pre-existing relationship from the real world before they had to go remote. So, for example, I sit, I go to a lot of board meetings. Like the board meetings these days are all done by Zoom call, and I, you know, I do five plus board meetings a week. The They've been moderately effective, actually. Um, There are some differences. There's some things that are better, some things that are worse. But one of the reasons why I believe they've been moderately effective is, in almost every case, I know the executive team and the other board members quite well, sometimes measured for decades, often measured for years. And so the social cues and various things that are more difficult to, to glean from a conference call there may be other ways in pre-existing relationships may offset that versus joining a new board from scratch with people I've never worked with before, whether they're investors or uh, the entrepreneurs and executive team. So we'll see how that sorts out as me and other people start making investments where there's a whole new, you know, construct from scratch that's remote. Set of relationships, a whole new set of relationships that are outside the existing framework. I, I work with a lot of, you know, I have fortunately co-invested with a lot of great people. I work. I, I you know, enjoy working with a lot of investors from other funds that serve on boards. And we. some of us have worked together as entrepreneurs. Some of us have co-invested together for you know decade plus. Some of us are social friends. So there's a lot of pre-existing relationships that we're topping into on these Zoom board meetings that I think make them significantly more constructive than if we were just throwing together a random assembly of people and say, okay, now make this work.
0: Yeah. No, you know, I agree. It's funny. I'm, I'm, I'm sensing a growing sort of religious religiosity uh, about remote. that's coming from a certain segment of the founders. And I think in, in part, it's uh, in reaction to a religiousness around VCs only investing in Silicon Valley over the last 20 years. And so, yeah, I
1: mean, but where we started, and also dial back to where we started, like knowing the rules, I think there are some advantages to being co-located in one headquarters, like Apple, Amazon, basically. Um, but knowing when to violate those rules again, you know, is part of the art. Like Git, GitLab has done phenomenally well for a only company from the very, very beginning. You know, I remember at KB when we led this deep round, and there was some debate about it, but it was very clear that you know the CEO had a very specific strategy. It was very thoughtful and very intentional, and you know had a differentiated value proposition, and it reinforced some of the value proposition. So, but it's it's been phenomenally successful. So it, it can work. But I think it's a conscious decision to make it work and being very attuned to what one needs to change derivatively to support that structure.
0: It's interesting what what I'm hearing so often from you today, as as I have in the past, is just we've got these playbooks, but uh, they can become too formulaic. And each company is individual. Each time is individual. Each market is individual. And you have to make the right decisions for every new circumstance in order to make things grow really big and do really well.
1: Every successful company is a custom group. Culture, distribution, product. And when it really works, it's because they become synergistic. Like they tap into each other, you know, like they reinforce each other. And so there is no prescribed formula. There are prescribed trade-offs. Like I think one of the other things that given can do and someone with experience, a board member can do, is constantly highlight the trade-offs. So the grass doesn't feel greener. There is a you know, natural reaction of all humans to look at a set of options and look at the one you're not doing and say, oh my God, that would be magical. Everything would be perfect. Usually nothing's perfect. There is no free lunch and there's trade-offs. So one thing I try to do is highlight for the founders. Like, yes, you can do that. Just know that the following two or three things may not be ideal. And So make sure that you really care about this one thing you're going to achieve versus the trade-offs you're going to sacrifice. And that's why you often see founders actually switch back and forth um, among strategies and uh, distribution strategies and organizational philosophies. is they realize that they need to tune um, one of the disadvantages and that leads to the decision-making trade-offs. Uh, you know, some of the more savvy founders I work with actually will ask me that question point blank, saying, how will I know if this isn't working the way I want it to? Like, where, what should I be looking at, looking for in advance that would be the signal that things are a little bit a mess um, before they're really
0: yeah and maybe maybe the uh, superpowers of the founders end up boiling down to what things for them aren't painful that would be painful for another set of founders and so they can they can balance in a different way than other people
1: they can and they should also be for the point about the team built, the company build. they also should be complementing themselves with people who find things they find painful to not be painful that's a great you know, way to lead to success is not force me to do things I don't want to do. I'm not very good at I hate to do I to procrastinate to do Find someone who likes to actually do those things because it turns out like there's enough people in the world that probably for everything I don't like to do, there's someone who actually enjoys it and is quite proficient at it. And I can be very happy doing what I like to do and find someone who wants to do the other stuff. And then we can both be both one plus one equaling three, but also be more intellectually and emotionally satisfied.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And if the company in general has that capability, then the competition won't. you can can excel. Um, you know, uh, when someone works with you, Keith, after a few years, what do you think that they feel like they've been learning from you? What's that experience like? It, boy, now that I've been working with Keith for four or five years, I've learned this. I've learned, what's the thing you think you bring to people when you're coaching them that, that they might have gotten elsewhere?
1: It's really important to me. Um, you know, I think it's easier in a company as an executive to have people learn about osmosis, um, watch, you know, shadow, and pick up uh, various things. We talk about what what they like learn. As an, as an investor, it's more challenging. It's very difficult to bring people with you in a fully immersive way all the time. There's a lot of constraints on that, so it's harder to teach as an investor, um, and hence maybe harder to scale a venture fund because of that. So as an executive, though, you can work with people quite closely, and what you want them to learn is like, you know, one of my one of my colleagues who worked for me for six years uh, or worked with me for six years uh, used to say there's like the railway boot camp, which is like a lot of a lot of early feedback on like what's not working and why, and then people who can learn um, sort of independently, um, you know, like learn crossposts. Uh, not everybody learns crossposts really well. Some people are like prefer to learn processes actually, and some people are just really don't like it. They want to be taught like specific principles. But um, the most important things, I think, um, the people who pick up the best are what makes my brain work, or the underlying uh, some sort of principles. Sometimes they actually can extract it in a more sustained, powerful way than I can, which is really amusing to watch. I've definitely had um, interns and former colleagues record reports who can play back to me. My answer or my philosophy better than I ever articulated it before. Um, it's surpri- surprisingly uh, insightful to hear yourself thinking and someone communicate it better than you ever would have. Um, but then you lock that in your brain and you realize that's the right way to describe it. Um, also, occasionally, like I'll borrow, I'll see something or a way of expressing something, and I'll kind of steal it and then scale. It. Like you know, like so someone might say something in a microcosm. And I'll sort of realize that, wow, that's actually extractable to all kinds of problems. We're going to apply it across the organization. I'm going to talk about it on podcasts, you know, et cetera. So sometimes it's also learning from them, having an eye on, uh, you know, what they're doing or saying that's interesting or different and realizing that it might be something that actually is uh, leverageable for everybody or a lot of people. And, you know, a platform, either because you're running an organization or a platform because you have Twitter followers or whatever to scale that philosophy. So they try to, and it actually works both ways, um, but ultimately, the number one skill that um, people who observed the former deputies of mine have gone on to do interesting things on their own is they can hold a business equation in their brain. So every business is like an equation, in my view, and that's what I think the word strategy means, is that you understand the connection between the variables. It's X times Y times Z equals success. And sometimes the reason why it's important to hold all these in your brain is sometimes the right move is not to try to force X to be greater because you've actually hit the minimum marginal returns on where you can move the X to. It's to actually change the Y or change the Z. So let's talk about it in a, a tangible but somewhat conceptual approach. Think of an enterprise software company. Um, often enterprise software companies have issues with sales velocity. Right? We're not selling our customer fee. You know, customers like a taking forever. Blah blah. Well, there's an interesting set of questions there, which is, are we targeting the right customer? Are we targeting the right decision-maker and the customer? And are we pricing the product correctly? Are we framing the value proposition correctly? Or Is the product actually the right problem? There's a set of like six or ten of these questions, and the art is knowing how they all relate to each other and knowing what order to change the dial. And that's what a good CRO, for example, or CEO, actually has a feel for, an intuition for, of like, how do these all connect and which one should I toggle when I'm not happy with the results? So I think the first step for founder is to write out the business equation, because every business equation is different for each company, and understand the weighting of the variables, and then try to get the variables into the right places, and then figure out if we're not if you're not happy with the results, where to tune and what order to tune. Um, and most of the people that I've worked with closely can do this after a year or three years of working together, they do it quite well, and it's actually surprising. It's a surprising rare skill. A lot of other people sort of point this out to me that you know I met so and so, and not surprisingly, he can do he or she can do this.
0: Nice, that's a good way to say it. Um, and, and is there a myth of a founder archetype? Keith? I mean, um, and is that archetype static? And and you know what? I, what I want to get at here eventually is sort of how you how you think about the founders that you choose to work with. And one of the things you said is that the good founders will not ask you about, should I do A or B? They should ask you, how should I think about this set of, of uh, decisions? Uh, that's that's a, a founder archetype or a behavior that you might find in the archetype you're looking for. Do you have a founder archetype that you've articulated for yourself or, um, or not yet? I think there's
1: three comments. Um, I think there are attributes of founders that tend to thrive. But not an architect. So, for example, the way Peter Thiel expresses this, I think, it's really powerful. Is you would not want Elon to be running Airbnb, and you definitely would not want Brian Chesky to be running SpaceX.
0: So, I think it depends on
1: what's the company trying to achieve, what's the hardest challenge, or what one of the really core cool challenges for that company, and does the founder have a world-class inside of college at those kind of skills? So, I think it matters like what's the product, what's the market, what's the competitive landscape about what's the best possible founder and founding team for that specific set of problems. So that's always critical. Um, there would be times when, like, literally, I will invest in a founder because they're working on, oh, my God, this is the perfect problem for you. And it's just so obvious that they have world-class abilities at tackling the single biggest source of friction. And then there would be other challenges and other companies maybe they wouldn't be perfect for. It. There's probably some set that are perfect for everything, but that's pretty rare. Um, and then third answer, though I think there are like Keith more essential casting quote unquote Keith founders um, where it's very clear when someone meets them as an angel investor, someone another investor meets them, I meet them, partner, mine meet them. When they're just like, yeah, you should work with Keith. There, there is a set of people that you know you just instantly communicate in very efficient. Um, extremely productive way. Um, but I think that's you know the least important. The most important is is the founder going to be unlike uh, highly unlikely in a positive way to succeed at this problem because of something about him or her? And then B, am I the right partner for him or her? Maybe. And if not, I'll go find a partner, you know, at, at KB or a partner at Founders
0: Fund that might be a better fit. Got it. So you actually take the time to think about that personality fit as you think about decisions. Yeah, I think there's a way. I mean, this is like,
1: it, it is like, as you know, lots of people talk about, but in some ways, it is like a marriage. And it's a, certainly a long term relationship uh, that goes through trials and tribulations, up and down. And you want someone that, A, counterbalances um, you obey. bit. Um, you don't want the same. So it's not like personality fit, just chaotically thought about, right? Chaotically described. Like, so if I'm super stressed as a founder, the last thing I want to do as a board member is add stress. I actually want to comfort you and relax you a bit. And then there's times when I think founders may be too protected. And I may pull out the whip or crack you up a little bit, like you see a movie Whiplash, You know, like, that's the time when you want to actually push a little bit. So it's understanding the founder's psychology, their framework, and then being like a cushion for them, and then sometimes being, you know, uh, more demanding. And it's not always obvious which to be like When things are going well, actually, if I want to be more demanding, when things are going badly, you actually probably want to be more supportive. That piece of a uh, paradigm. Um, so I think it's not just a, a personality fit. It's just can you be you know, constructive
0: dialogue where one plus one really feels like it's three. Right. And so what are those things about people that you won't give up on? I mean, what what... What makes for great raw material? Because you could be an Elon personality, you could be a Brian Chesky personality, but still, there's some commonalities that, that you get a sense of, and that you're you're, you're you know the founders find people say, oh, this guy's going to love Keith, and Keith's going to love him. What, what are those things?
1: Yeah, tenacity, uh, relentlessly resourceful. So I like the Paul Graham formulation better than my old formulation of tenacity. Um, fast learner, a quick, very quick pick up speed. You know, I'm fairly impatient in explaining things, meaning like I like to explain things once and expect that people immediately rock it. Um, there's probably nothing that frustrates me more in life, socially even more so than professionally, is repeating myself. Like, it, it drives my friends and partners crazy. Um, I just really like to, I, I have a very, you know, blast or whatever, train with a very good memory. So if you have a conversation with me once, you're never going to forget that, that conversation. I can recycle conversations I've had thirty years ago easily. Um, so it drives me crazy to repeat myself. Uh, so people who tend to like pick up really fast, fast pick up speed. Um, people who like people who are ambitious, definitely. I mean, there, there's ambition and ambition. Um, there's like different levels of ambition. Um, we would never fund something either can or your fund that doesn't have some level of ambition. But I tend to like the outrageously ambitious people, borderline a little crazy. Um, I can. You know, when people say Keith Founder, it means, implies often that Keith can deal with a little bit of craziness. Um, people who want to change the world are, you know, have screws somewhere usually. Um, you know, there's a famous Steve Jobs Apple commercial about think different. There's a bit of truth to that among founders. And I, I tend to have worked, well, I've certainly worked with and worked for a lot of people that fit that DNA. So it doesn't, doesn't bother me. Um, I really expect that that's part of what makes the person. Uh, super impressive is that they're going to see the world different and differently, and they're going to occasionally have very strange reactions to the world, and that, that that isn't a problem for me. I can you know I, I can work with that, um, and so but that's not every that's not for everybody. Um, the people who really want to walk through the walls, uh, you know, walk through that wall one way or the other. That's that's basically the most important, and then. The IQ and horsepower to understand why they're
0: walking through that wall, right? To understand the playbook and understand where to deviate that sort of thing. And so, um, if you're thinking about these Olympic athletes that are out there trying to change the world and are highly ambitious, the difference between number one and number twenty is actually fractionally small. Um, <clears throat> do you? What, what's the sense uh, that you have that what happens differently for that number one person? Because that's the that's the business that we're in, right? We're looking for that. Monster outlier. And it's
1: it's actually to be one of two things. It's either they're outrageously really good at one dimension. Like and I mean outrageous and, then, and we'll talk about this like off and we are in fast. It'd be nice to isolate that one dimension say I have never seen somebody who's like axed before. Like they have the top ten basis points uh, of ask the top ten basis points about field, top ten basis points of something. So extremely world-class on one key dimension. And then, you know, maybe lots of world-classes. Well. Or, they... So they're either extraordinary, extraordinary in that sense. Or I was thinking about another model that sometimes works. Oh, it's the compounding. Since so the rate of learning across many things, and it compounds. You know, it's the small gains times 365 days a year times X years. It's actually one of the hardest things to do as an investor, too, because... What you're ultimately doing when you meet a founder, especially for a seed investment or angel investment, is project not what is this person capable of today, but what's this person going to be like in 10 years? And that's a rate of growth question. And so you're looking for a sustained rate of growth. Um, but sometimes when you have to make a decision, you don't have a lot of pre-existing history with a founder. It's very hard to make a judgment call in a 20-minute, 40-minute, 60-minute meeting about the rate of growth over the next 10 years. You're applying a line on one data point, which is impossible. It's mathematically impossible. like there's actually a fruits to that. Um, so that's what you're trying to do though. And so the more data points you have, the better. So it's, it's a whole lot easier for me, extremely like, when I need a founder that I've known before, if the person's worked with me, worked in a company I was involved in, you know, pitched me at some point you know, earlier in life, drawing that line is actually a feasible task and a realistic you know, goal for me. Is what's that what's that scope look like? Plotting the slope on one initial meeting, you know, like that's like almost like a fool's error, but you kind of have to do it. So, like for example, the easiest way to make a mistake would be to say, okay, great, I'm gonna fund a space company, I want to find the next Elon. The last way you want to try to do that is to go look at Elon today and try to retrofit today's Elon or today's Max Leptin or whoever into what you're trying to fund today. Because neither Elon nor Max looked like what they do today when they were 22. And what you're really trying to do is find out someone who looks like the 22 or 24 year old then, not not the 40 year old
0: with a compounding
1: rate of growth. Exactly. So that's that's the most that's the other thing is either if they're not the single best in the world at some dimension right away, they have some compounding rate of growth that looks absurd. And then you, you know you work with them over five or ten years, you just go on for the ride and you get to watch. <laughs> you know, it's amazing.
0: Well, I think it's very well articulated as always, Keith, and I really appreciate you spending time with us. It was a great day today, and uh, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, Yeah, and we'll see you soon.